Today, guys, is our last, our last sermon uh, on this series that we've called Bigger. And um, really, the last few weeks, the last three months, we've been looking at this. And the writer to the Hebrews has said so much, hasn't he? So much has been said about how we are to see the bigness and the supremacy of Christ. It's just been an amazing few weeks. And today, really, as we come into the kind of final furlong of this book, really, the message of the final verses of this book, at one level, are very simple. They really keep going. Just keep going. Keep going. Make sure that you keep putting one foot, spiritually speaking, in front of the other, and you keep going throughout your life. So you're going to see, for example, in, in chapter 12, you see phrases like, run with endurance. Do not grow weary or faint-hearted. Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. The description in these last few verses is of a weak people who are finding just keeping going quite difficult. And particularly at this time of year even, when it's kind of like the end of term for you guys in education and it's, like, what is it, middle of July or something, end of July. Actually, just keeping on going, to be honest with you, can, can sound very simple. But, you know, sometimes you feel it more than other times, but actually it's not that simple. Because the reality is, what these guys, these men and women, these amazing Christians who have been following Jesus, and therefore their Jewish, their Jewish family and friends and neighbors and work colleagues who were once so for them, it seems that now they are persecuting them. They're not in favor of their new Christian found faith. And so life has been difficult. That's been the backdrop of this, of this whole book. It only makes sense if you see that. And so after all that the writer has been saying, he's saying, keep going. In light of everything that you're experiencing, it's vital that you keep going. The, the previous chapter, the previous verses, as we had recently preached on, was about keep going when you face the potential roadblock in your life of bitterness. Because when life is hard, actually, one of the biggest things that can stop you from just keeping on going in your Christian life is bitterness. Keep going. Keep running the, 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 the race that's marked out for you. In the, in the final verses of chapter 13, he talks about things, he says things like this, let brotherly love continue. Why is he talking about that? Because there's the potential roadblock in your life if you've been hurt of stopping loving people. Actually, when you've experienced difficulties and setbacks and disappointments, let brotherly love continue. I keep loving people who have hurt you is not easy. It talks about the fact that he says things like, keep entertaining strangers. Why is he saying that to them? He says that because probably some of them have entertained strangers and then those very people that they opened up and brought them into their house and told about Jesus probably turned their back on them and shot them to the, to the, uh, the people who ended up persecuting them. He's saying don't, don't close up because of the, the hurt. Some of you have had things happen in your life with people that you would have trusted and they've abused that trust. And today is a message of don't let that become a roadblock in your life. In the final verses, he talks about marriage. He says, let marriage still be preserved. Why? Because actually when life is difficult, often your marriage can become the arena where actually things are felt very acutely. What I'm trying to say is this, is that the final big idea in this book is so simple and yet not easy at all. Simply keep going. 
Keep going with loving those when they, when they turn their back on you. Keep going loving your husband and your wife. Keep obeying your leaders, it says. Why does he say that? Because actually, when you felt hurt and things have been difficult, often we can take out on those who are leading us. It's a message of keep going. And so we have to ask ourselves the question then is, okay, Mr. Writer to the Hebrews, I want to do that. I want to keep going to the day I die. I want to be someone who keeps loving Jesus. So the million-dollar question then is how? How do we make sure that no matter what the roadblocks are in my life, and some of you are facing significant roadblocks, you really are. They might be emotional things going on in your soul that you never expected. It might be in your marriage. There are difficulties that you didn't expect. It may be that you're single and you never imagined you would be single. And these things can actually become genuine things that can hold you back from following this Jesus way. It's a lot easier sometimes to just go, do you know what, I, I'm, I'm not going to follow Jesus, which means embracing these things. I'm actually just going to go another way. How can we make sure that these potential roadblocks in our life don't genuinely stop us following Jesus? And in these final few verses, he gives us two incredible keys so that we can keep going. Number one, we have to remember the bigger picture. We have to remember the bigger picture. And number two, we have to remember the better blood. We have to remember the better blood. And before you think I'm absolutely crazy, we'll get there in a moment. I'll explain what I mean by that. But join with me in reading these last few verses with that as a backdrop. How do we keep going? This is what he says. His final, this is his kind of, his real last final pinnacle of theological stake he gives, okay? This is what he says. Verse 18 of chapter 12. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they couldn't endure the order that was given that if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Lord, I pray in these few moments, come by your power and flood our souls with revelation as to the incredible reality, Lord God, the incredible reality that we can't see with our eyes, but we can see with the eyes of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Two keys, two keys. The first key to keeping on going when life is pants, is this. Are you ready? Remember the bigger picture, is what he's saying. Remember it. You see, the reality is this. If your life is tough, and the reality is all of our lives, to a greater or lesser extent, will have seasons or ongoing seasons where in one area or another, it is difficult. Listen to me. If at the human earthly level, your life is difficult. 
If your view of, can I put it this way, the vertical realm, you know what I mean by that, the us and God realm. If your view of that realm, of who God is, and the heavenly realm, and what's happening in the the realm that we cannot see, that the Bible talks loads about, the heavenly realm that's very real. If your view of that realm and God is wrong, then you will have no chance of keeping on going. If your life at a human level is difficult, if you couple that with a wrong perspective of who God is and what's happening in eternity, then he's saying, you you really won't keep going. And what he wants them to understand is, is that when life is difficult and when humanly things are tricky, it is so absolutely vital that you are gripped with the eyes of your heart with a true and profound revelation of the reality of who God is and what is actually happening in that heavenly realm that we've just read about. What he's wanting them to understand is this. He's saying, listen, every time you gather, every time you come together as a church, be it in a small group, maybe in a coffee shop, every time you come together in this very normal school hall, or wherever it is that you are, when you're coming together, Although with your eyes, you can just see this physical stuff that's happening, what he's wanting them to understand is, in a way that would literally blow your brains if you could actually understand it and see it properly, there is something genuinely occurring that is completely and utterly beyond comprehension in terms of the unseen realm. The trouble is we are so rationalistic in our mindset. We're so born and bred that only things that are rational make sense. We're also so materialistic. That's a huge philosophy that we're born into, i.e. the only things you can physically touch, material things, are real. And this last few verses, he's saying to them, if you are only viewing your life through the physical and the visible, you will never make it. You have to develop eyes of faith. I, faith is the, is the conviction of things unseen. Remember that. It's the deep confidence that although down here on planet Earth, things are sometimes good and most of the time a bit weird and rubbish. Actually, the reality is there's a growing deep confidence in my soul that actually the reality of things unseen, unseen is unbelievably real. Unbelievably real. That's what he's wanting to say to them. And he, he, he paints this incredible picture that when you come together, He says it's like Mount Zion to the city of the living God. Now, what he's done is so clever. He's so clever. What he does is before he comes into this incredible picture of the reality of that heavenly realm that he describes, what he does is he paints an incredible contrast so that they will feel the wonder every time they consider what it is that's happening when they come together to come before God. And he talks about this, this rather strange picture for some of us, if we're not familiar with the Bible, where he says, he talks about a, a scene that's very odd. He talks about a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest. What's he talking about? What he's saying is to these Jews who would have been so familiar with the story that he's recounting, he says, do you remember when Moses, Moses, you might have heard of him, when he approached God on Mount Sinai, that actually this situation is the one that he's describing. Moses went up the mountain. He was the only one allowed to go up. And Israel was at the foot of the mountain, trembling with fear. It's a story that we read about in the book of Exodus. And the point that he's trying to say is this. He's saying, listen, do you remember that picture? Do you remember that story? What's the feel of that story? What's the feel of that description? It's, it's similar kind of bit this way. It's not exactly that everything is tickety-boo, between God and planet Earth. 
The feel of those opening verses where it talks about a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg for they could not endure the order that was given. The big idea that we need to understand, he's saying, at that moment when God spoke to Moses and all Israel was gathered at the foot, the point really is this, is that things were not really very good at that moment. It wasn't great. And you have to understand that when the Bible first starts the story of humanity back in the Garden of Eden, there is utter wonderful unity between God and Adam and Eve. They're walking together in the garden. They're the best of friends. Then humanity sins. And Genesis 6.6 says this. It says, because humanity sinned, it says that God's heart was grieved, deeply grieved when he looked on planet Earth. The point being is that right at the beginning of the Bible, very quickly, the relationship between the God of the universe and people on planet Earth goes horrendously wrong. And the result of that, it says that God's heart was deeply grieved. That's the context. God makes us, we sin, we choose to reject him, and God is deeply hurt and grieved. Now, why is that relevant? Because what it's saying is this. He's saying that was the context. And so when this story that he's recounting to them, when God then many years later wanted to try, as it were, and and restore that relationship between God and humanity. This moment on the mountain, it's like, it's not exactly a relaxed Sunday dinner kind of feel, is it? This idea of gloom and tempest, and even coming close to God, was a terrifying thing. It's a bit like the idea that, you, that we read here is, is of a distance that is very, very real between God and humanity. Moses alone is allowed up the mountain. The mountain is, is a place of, of terror and gloom. It's a bit like, you know what it's like when you, um, when you have an argument with someone that you love, maybe a friend, maybe a loved one, and it's all rather tense. And one of the things that normally marks out those moments is that you want distance. Yeah, if there's been the occasional time when me and Josie have had a little tete-a-tete, Normally what will happen is at some moment one of us will just sort of spring from the presence of the other person and, and just go away for a season. There's nothing worse than having an argument in a car on a journey because then you can't escape and you're just sort of trapped near that person. And you're like, there they are. I can't get away from them. There's something in us that doesn't want to be near someone when, we're, when, when there's a relational breakdown. And this, this thing that he's talking about, this incident, this, this moment he's describing is all about distance. God is wanting to begin reconciliation. But this scene on Sinai is one of, of gloom and fire. It's one of, of, of you know what it's like when, you, when you've had an argument and you think, I know I need to kind of, I know I need to try and somehow make this better. But it's very guarded. You know that when you've been hurt by someone, you're like, I will talk to you. But this is, listen, it's on my terms, okay? You sit there and listen to me. It's almost that feel is what he's describing. That's what it was like at Mount Sinai. God was communicating. He was wanting there to be reconciliation with planet Earth and him. But at this moment, it was very tense. Do you see? It wasn't like how it was in Eden where it it was all perfect and restored. At this moment that he's describing to them, it was tense. It It was just the beginnings of something. Now, why am I telling you about this? The reason is he wants them to understand, listen, If you are still carrying a mindset that your relationship with God and God's mood, shall we say, 
and God's view of you is still Sinai-esque, if you couple that wrong perspective with the difficulties of your life, you're never going to keep going. When roadblocks come, you'll just feel overwhelmed. He wants them to understand the reality is that that is not now how God views them. That's not the reality of their, of their relationship with God. The reality is, Christians, we can unconsciously often, we can still carry that mindset in our lives. We can still unconsciously be walking around thinking, well, God's vaguely kind of interested in me, but I'm sure he's just disappointed with me and a bit gloomy and a bit upset and a bit frustrated and cross with me because of all the mistakes I've made in my life. And what he wants them to say is, listen, do you remember that story? Remember that moment? Do you understand now that everything has changed? Everything has changed. That is not the current situation on planet Earth with me and you at all. And what he does is you see that the the transition between the end of verse 21 and the beginning of 22 is breathtaking. He says, he's talking about, he says, uh, indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses says, I tremble with fear. And then as we go into verse 22, there is this unbelievable shift. There's this remarkable contrast between this gloomy, scary recounting of something that happened and the next scene that he describes. It's the difference between a huge storm that he's been describing in those opening verses and the amazing peace that now comes when he describes the current situation that they have with God. It's a little bit like if you, uh, if you ever have had that situation where the argument with someone has broken down to the extent where you actually leave the house. Occasionally that has happened, I'm afraid to say. And, um, and you, look, you, know, you, look, you leave the house and it's all a bit awkward. And, and, and on your little walk, you realize what a wally you've been. You realize, actually, this is, this is ridiculous. I'm, why am I... And you come back into the house ready with your little speech, ready to sort of apologize. And you go in and just picture the house. There it is. It's all rather dark because you left it in a moment of, of gloom and tempest. And out you go and you come back and you open the door. And the end of verse 21 is you coming back in. It's that door opening moment. Yeah? You come back in expecting your other, what your loved one to be sitting on the sofa going, well, have you got anything to say, my love? Thinking that's going to be the appropriate setting and as you come back in you don't find that actually as you come in you click on the light the room is jam-packed full of all your best friends all your family everyone who loves you streamers go off and there's this surprise and one moment you've been left in in this place of, of knowing your guilt and your shame and as you come back in verse 22 is this ridiculous surprise party kind of moment it says but you have come to mount zion You've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering. It's this unbelievable shift. He's saying, look, you should, if it was just down to your own efforts and your own own guilt, the mood should be like that moment where you try and vaguely make it better. But actually, every time you come to God, when we come together, actually what's happening is you're coming in not to a cross grumpy, loved one who's upset with the things that you've done. You're coming in to a place where it says the angels are gathered in festive festive gathering. A place which is genuine, although you can't see it with your eyes. This is telling us that the atmosphere of the heavenly realm is one of a party. Okay? It's one of an incredible ongoing celebration. That although you can't see it with the eyes in, in your head, the eyes of your heart 
He wants us to grow in understanding this is the reality of the world that we can't honestly see with our eyes, but is absolutely true. And he uses all this language, and there's a whole sermon series in each of these phrases, so I can't remotely do it justice. But he talks about a city of the living God. A city. You see, in the first picture, it was only Moses who could approach God, and even then it was terribly awkward and scary. He's now saying that the people of God are joined together. This idea of a city is of of, of millions, billions of people who now have absolute direct access to the living God. He says, you, he says it's a city of the living God who come before him, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That idea of the firstborn. In Jewish culture, the firstborn child was the one who ultimately inherited everything. If you were the secondborn, you got nothing. The firstborn got everything. And he's using this image to help us to understand that when you become a Christian, every single Christian gets the full inheritance. Jesus is the firstborn of many brothers, it says. He's trying to help us to understand that actually we don't have to spend our life feeling inferior or feeling like we're missing out. But as a Christian, even if in the human realm you feel like, do you know what? I feel overlooked. I feel like I've got a raw deal. I feel like my job situation is a nightmare. I feel like my emotional situation or my relational situation is not great. This is saying, yeah, but do you know what? Ultimately, you're, you are part of that firstborn privileged congregation before the living God. That we are those that come before him. I love it. I love the fact that it talks about these happy angels. Happy angels. Isn't that amazing? That there are angels right now as we sit here and I do my best to try and unpack this unbelievable passage. <laughs> that there are angels right now, it says, who are utterly thrilled at what's happening here. Why are they so happy? Why are they happy? I wonder if it's because when God explained to them his plan of coming down to this earth and being involved in this mess that is planet earth, he pro- they probably thought, you're crackers. You're crazy. We're having them. Why would you do that, God? Why on earth? Look at them. They're evil. They're just self-obsessed. They don't even believe in you. Why would you do that? Why would you? And now it says here, look at this. It says this gathering to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's talking about Christians now who are in eternity and they're perfect. It's like the angels can see the handiwork of what God's done. Christians who have now who are now dead and with God and alive with him. It says the spirits of the righteous made perfect. It's like these angels are viewing people who were absolute nightmares and now seeing them in eternity with God. And I think that's why they're happy. I think that's why they're thinking this is incredible. The plan of God to take wicked, selfish people. I would have never gone with. Would you, Gabriel? No way. But God did. And look what he's done. And look, they're up here. And these guys down here have no idea what's awaiting for them. The things in their life that seem so big and pressing, any moment, their heart's going to stop beating. Their lungs are going to stop moving in and out. And they're going to be with him. And they're going to be perfect. Not just a little bit better, perfect. The spirit of the righteous made perfect. That longing in your soul to be perfect, you perfectionists, it will one day be absolutely fulfilled only in eternity. Hallelujah. That's what he's saying. That's why he's happy. That's why he's saying, I need you, O church. I need you to start to learn to see with the eyes of your hearts. To see that is actually real. To see that is actually true. And I love this phrase here. He says that you are enrolled 
in heaven. You are enrolled. That idea of being enrolled in something, it speaks of security. It speaks of security. It's like you're in and you're not, gonna, you're not going out. Some of you recently have uh, experienced uh, the horror of your children. You know, you're, you're trying to get them enrolled in one primary school. Loads of our friends have had the shock of suddenly then them not going to the school that they thought. And almost going, oh my goodness, that was, I thought that was a done deal. And bless you, many of you have rolled with the punches and done brilliantly well and are now in faith for that new place. But it just goes to illustrate, doesn't it, that actually there's nothing in this world that's ultimately secure. There's nothing. Even, even something where you think, well, I live within the area and I'm sure my kids are going to get enrolled in that particular place. It's like an illustration of saying, actually, there is only one place ultimately where we are utterly enrolled. If you're a Christian here today, by the grace of God, and that's with him in eternity. That's with him in eternity. And when that starts to, to come into your soul, Paul in the book of Philippians, he's talking about this kind of thing. He's talking about the resurrection of the dead. And he's saying, this is, he says that those of you who are mature think this way. He's saying, don't think, don't let your minds be occupied only with earthly things. Those of you who are mature, allow yourself to think more and more about these things. About these things. I um, I uh, have got a, a youngest daughter called Poppy. And Poppy has this, pi- this, pi- this pillow, Poppy's pillow. And um, I don't know what it's made of. Is it kind of like a sort of cottony thing? It's just very, very soft. It's bizarrely soft. And she is addicted to this pillow. Literally, wherever she goes, I mean, she would take it to preschool if she could. She's, she'll be watching telly in the little head. She's always on the pillow. She'll be eating her food, trying to have it with the pillow. She's constantly, and it is really soft. You should come around and check it out. It is just, an, it's beautiful. Even this morning, I just had a few moments. I thought, oh, this is so good. And this pillow, she adores this little pillow. And it brings her profound comfort the whole of her time. And what this writer is saying, I want you I want you to be someone who in your life, it's like, this, it's like you have this cushion of truth that you spend your life thinking about. You spend your life getting close to. The things of this world, the things you can see with your physical eyes, often are going to be really difficult. And some of you right now, you are going through things with your kids or with your health or with your finances, or with your parents, or with the situations that you're giving your life to, where if you only look with the eyes, the physical eyes that God has, rather than say, actually, I'm going to learn, as it were, to nestle up to the truths that you're saying here, that Lord, help me to see. Help me to see that although at one level, when we come together, we're just gathering in a hall, actually, every time we come together, we're gathering before this unbelievable city of the living God. We're coming to him who has enrolled us in eternity. I love the words of John Wesley when he, um, after having the most amazing life, this guy, an amazing uh, sort of revivalist, he, um, his last words before he died famously were, he said, most of all, we get God. Best of all, we get God. And his life was amazing. He saw hundreds, millions of people come to Christ. And yet in his soul, it was like he just lived like Paul. That's, that's actually where I'm living. Yeah, that's actually where I'm living. You see Stephen, one of the early martyrs, 
actually when you see him and you hear about his death, actually you can tell he's, he's thinking that way. Actually, what I'm actually thinking about is the fact that I'm, I'm already enrolled. I'm already secure. I'm already with him in my soul. I'm already, I'm already with him. My friend who I mentioned some time ago, a friend of mine who's a pastor, and unfortunately in his life had got into some sin. When, um, when everything turned around for the better and he repented of it, and although it's meant that he's actually, he's lost his job and they're going to lose their house and um, probably going to have to even leave the church that they were part of. The amazing thing is this, although humanly all those difficult things are real, the reality is he'd never had that deep sense of security in God that when he died, he was going to go to heaven. That was actually gnawing away in his heart throughout all that time. That was the real cause of why he, in a sense, gave himself to earthly pleasures more than heavenly pleasures. And the biggest shift he said to me, he said, after God revealed to him, he had a dream and God said to him, if you don't stop doing these things, I'm going to end your life. And that was just the fear of the Lord which caused him to repent. But then two days later, when he got in his car, he just cried out to God, God, would you just reveal yourself to me? And he said, in that moment, God, the Holy Spirit, absolutely ambushed his soul. And for the first time in his entire life, he had the deepest sense of security that he knew and he knew and he knew and he knew in his heart that if he was to die in that very moment, he was going immediately into the arms of Jesus. And he said, I've lost everything and I've been a complete doofus, but I know now, I know this is real. I know this is real. And when you talk to him now, he is a different person. And it's like he's had to lose everything in order to gain that deepest sense of security that, you know, this reality, this reality is, is nothing compared with that reality. That's what he's saying. We need to remember the bigger context. But then he says, in order to keep going when the roadblocks of life come your way, he finally, he talks about something, three little words that are amazing. Here in verse 24, he says, you haven't just come to this unbelievable scene you can't see with your eyes, but it's absolutely real. He says, you've also come, look at this, really specifically to Jesus. You've come to Jesus. Not just God, the judge of all. Not just angels, although that's amazing. They are real. Not just this heavenly realm, but most specifically, you've come to Jesus. The mediator of a new covenant. A mediator is someone who brings, where there's two parties who are hurt and there's been a breakdown. A mediator is someone who brings peace. And this Jesus, it says, he's someone who ultimately, you see all this amazing picture of angels and everything, ultimately, that's incredible. But what it's actually fundamentally about is about a reconciled God with his people. That's actually what it's ultimately all about. This is all about relationship. It's about God doing everything in order to restore relationship. And I love what he does here. He says to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood. Do you see what he does there? It's like he separates Jesus from his blood. It's like Jesus is mind-blowing, but just for a moment, think about his blood. Why is he talking about his blood? What's that got to do with the people who are struggling just to keep going? Why is he talking about blood all of a sudden? He does it because of this. He says, he says to the sprinkled blood that Jesus shed on the cross, he said, that blood, it speaks. It's like it talks. It speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, who was Abel? What's he talking about? The first guy to ever get murdered in the Bible was a guy called Abel. And his brother did it. Nice. 
His own brother murdered him. It's right at the beginning of the Bible. And he's wanting to say this. What is the contrast that he's trying to draw here between Jesus' blood that was spilt and the blood of some guy near the beginning of the Bible, this guy Abel? And this is mind-blowing. He's saying this. The fundamental difference is this. What did the blood being spilt of Abel achieve? What did it achieve? Nothing. Nothing. It was just like a waste. It says in the Bible after it says it, it says the blood, the Lord says his blood looks like it cries out to me. Vengeance. And then it says actually all it leads to, the next verse in that Genesis passage, it talks about actually a curse coming on the murderer. That's what it achieved. It achieved nothing and it achieved a curse. Now think about that for a moment. Every single time, like we heard this week, even in the news, when a 74-year-old man, because he has a mild prang with someone in Sussex in a car, the guy gets out and he stabs him to death. What does that achieve? Nothing. That's what creates the anger in us. That's what makes us feel so infuriated. It's the waste of it. It's the fact that, honestly, in a few weeks' time, we won't even remember that. In a few months' time, apart from his family and close friends, we will go, oh, do you remember that? Vague? Yeah, I vaguely remember it. His blood achieves nothing. The other guy who murdered him in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a moment of rage, it has achieved nothing. And very quickly, it will be gone from the collective memory of, this U, of the UK. That's why we try and put, you know, people put flowers on places to try and keep it alive, to try and almost somehow give it some level of dignity and meaning. But the reality is, Abel's blood didn't achieve anything. It was a waste. Now, this is the amazing contrast between the blood of Jesus. Let me ask you this. When Jesus went to the cross and he died on the cross, what did it achieve? Everything! It achieved everything! You see, when I looked at this passage, historically, I always thought... Whenever I think about Jesus dying on the cross and the blood that he went through, I often think, oh, I should feel sorry for Jesus, right? We often, hello? Yes, we often think, oh, I should feel sorry for Jesus. Poor thing. Oh, he did that for me and bless him. What an amazing hero. And there's nothing wrong with thinking Jesus was amazing in that sense and almost feeling somewhat sorry for the fact that he went through all that. But this is not talking about the fact that Jesus' blood should make us feel sorry for him. This is speaking about the fact that Jesus' blood, in contrast to Abel's blood and everyone else's blood, has achieved everything. It's a blood that doesn't lead to curse. It leads to the blessing of eternity. In fact, the only reason anyone can come before Mount Zion and the angels with everyone being happy is because of the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. It's like it goes on and on and on. It happened 2,000 years ago and it's still effective today. It's the reason that I can come before God right now. And if I was to die this afternoon, I'd be able to point to the blood and go, his blood is unlike anyone else's blood because it leads to the blessing that means I can come before a living God. Hallelujah. We don't feel sorry for Jesus. We look at his blood and we go, your blood is magnificent. It's the genius of the blood. It's the efficacy of the blood. It's the efficiency of the blood. It's the power of the blood. Do you see everyone else's blood just happens and it's a waste and it's, it creates in us this sense of, oh, this shouldn't happen. But when we look at Jesus, we celebrate his blood. We go, his blood is unlike anyone else's blood. His blood is breathtaking. His blood has changed absolutely everything. 
And that's why he is a mediator unlike any other. Do you understand that? We've been hearing in the news recently about the amazing mediation of the USA and other people, UK, for nine years mediating with the Iran, the, the Iranian government. And after nine years, they've achieved this thing where I think it means that basically there's some kind of new vague peace where it means that in theory they won't be uh, making uh, nuclear weapons and, and so the sanctions can be lifted. And, and it's, a, it's a top headlines. But I want to say this. Jesus' mediation is 10 billion times greater than anything any USA or UK government could ever do. Hallelujah. They spent nine years in hot, sweaty hotels trying to work it through and they've eventually produced this incredibly fragile thing and we're like, yay, it makes me feel really safe. Any moment it could go wrong. And yeah, that's great mediation. Brilliant. Well done, superpowers of the world. It's nothing compared with Jesus. His blood. It's like, what did they give for this mediation? Well, I had to, you know, be away from home a bit and go to another country. Jesus gave his life. He hung on a cross. He's a world leader like no other. He was butchered so that you and I could be blessed. Hallelujah. This is why he's saying it's the sprinkled blood like no other. And listen, some of you are sitting here and thinking, listen, this sounds great, Tom, but I don't know the things I've done or thought or said in my life. I don't know if I can genuinely come before God. Some of you are thinking that. You're thinking, I don't know if I can come before this holy God. And the reality is this, let me say this with all humility but challenge. Is there anything that you've done that you might think is, that is truly shocking? Let's put it in those terms. You think it's shocking enough, which means you could never approach a holy God. Can I ask you this one question? Is there anything more shocking than the spilt blood of the Son of God? Name it. Anything that you could think or say or do now or in eternity, even your worst sin is like a pebble in terms of shock value compared with the immense dam of, a, of Jesus Christ shedding his blood on the cross. There's nothing that can... can the, heaven is unshockable. The angels are unshockable now. They've seen God die on a cross. How is your sin or my sin ever going to shock heaven? Isn't that wonderful? It means that now, no matter what you do in your life, even your worst, darkest moment where you do something that you so bitterly regret, it is real and sin is real. But can I humbly say, when we gaze upon the greatest, glorious and most awful and wonderful shock of Jesus Christ dying bloody on a cross for you and me, hallelujah, our very worst sins are nothing compared with that. That's why he talks about an unshakable kingdom. It's like heaven is unshakable now. (laughs) What possibly could shock God? His own son has died on a cross. And that means to the day you die, you can spend your life, even when you've done the worst thing or thought the worst thing or haven't done the things you should do. And you think, oh, I'm just a nightmare. You can instantly go, I can come before Mount Zion. I can run before God. There's never going to be anything that can separate us from the love of God. Hallelujah. Because he's done the most shocking thing. This is good news. This is wonderful news, which means that we can always be those who are free to run to our God. And that's why he says, you know, I'm going to shake this world. I'm going to shake it. But we come to an unshakable God, a God who now is unshakable, unshockable, a God who has done everything because of the blood of Jesus. Because of the blood of Jesus, we say your blood, Jesus, is unlike any other blood. Your blood, Jesus, it it goes on and on and on and on. Every single time I feel so sinful and fragile and weak and aware of my 
failings. I can point to the blood and say, you know, the blood of God. You know, in the films when like a king or someone, and they, you know, you get the blood, it's the shock of a royal person's blood being shed. This is the blood of the Son of God poured out for you and me. And it means that we can always approach him. And although it's not like our sins are unimportant, they are real. We join with eternity in saying, my sin now, it is nothing compared with the greatest glorious shock of this God who's done everything. And I want you to know this with the bottom of my heart because the enemy wants to, he wants to, he, that's why it says in, 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 in Hebrews 12, lay aside every weight every, and the sin that so in, easily entangles. Sins that ultimately in comparison with the, the mercy of God, those sins that you feel, those weights that can entangle you, he says, let them be ripped off your ankles today, church. Let them be ripped off. And stand in awe of the unbelievable shock of, a, of Jesus Christ's blood being shed for you and me. Should we stand to our feet? I want to worship him. I want to worship him. And right now, can we invite the band back? I want to pray for us. Right now. If you know that you're just here today and perhaps you just feel like, you know, I just want to express my gratitude to Jesus. You know, although my eyes have been on myself to some degree this morning, right now I want our eyes to be on him. I want our eyes to be on him and his blood. I want our eyes, the eyes of our imaginations in these last 10 minutes to be firmly on Jesus. Your hope of entrance into heaven is on the blood of someone else. Hallelujah. It is on the blood of him. It is his blood. We have a gospel that is not some just sort of super spiritual thing that doesn't get involved with the nitty gritty of your life. It is, a, it is a gospel that reaches into the darkest parts of your life. Blood is a very guttural thing, isn't it? It's a very kind of raw thing. And right now, I just want, if, there's, if you know that there's things in your life and you just feel, I just need to give that to him. Right now, quickly in your heart, just give it to him. If there's things you just think, it might be lack of faith. It might just be preoccupation with your life on planet earth. It might be actual sins that are just genuinely real. Right now, quickly, quickly just say, Lord Jesus, I want to run to you. My hope is in your blood. I thank you that you're never shocked. I thank you, Lord Jesus, you will never be shocked. You will never say, oh, I don't know what we do about that. That, Lord Jesus, your, your triumph at the cross is so massive, massive and weighty. It far outweighs even the greatest sins I could ever do. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you might be sitting here and your heart might be going. You might be thinking, do you know, I just know I need to get right with this holy God. You're right, you do. You absolutely do. This is not a guaranteed thing. This is for people who say, I need to put my faith in his blood, not in my efforts. And if that's you today, I want to ask you just to put your hand high in the air quickly. If you say, I know I need this Jesus. I know I'm not a Christian, but I want to be a Christian. And I want to be confident. I want to be able to say on that day, Jesus, I'm only here because of your blood. If that's you, can I just want to encourage you, just put your hand in the air as a signal to him, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, I know I can only come through your blood. Do not leave this room without having got right with your wonderful creator. 
He's done everything so you can have confidence. Everything. So he will, he will never be shocked. He will never be shocked. Even now, you might be reminded of something that you've buried. And our wonderful God is saying, you can hold your head up high before holy angels and a holy God through the blood of my son. Some of you, things have, have, have actually been done to you and you still feel shame. And right now, Jesus is saying, no, no, don't carry that. Don't carry that. I've cleansed you. There are some of you here, and I know it right now, there's things that you've suffered and you felt ashamed because of it and you've carried it into your Christian life. And right now, the blood of Jesus, he says, that's the big deal. Those things were awful that happened to you. But I do not want you to carry that anymore. There is no shame or guilt before me now. I've done everything so that you can run into my arms. Let's just, let's just worship him together. Let's worship the risen Saviour, the one who's raised from the dead in splendour and in glory.